Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast again with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my friend someone that many of you will probably know, Scott Ingram. He's the host of the Daily Sales Tips and Sales Success Stories podcast, and he's also a quota-carrying sales professional. Lovely to meet you again, Scott. Marcus, it's great to be with you. This is going to be fun. Excellent. So, Scott, would you mind telling people in 60 seconds a bit about your background and how you got to where you are? 60 seconds. So... For the last 10 years, I think that's the the relevant piece. I have worked in marketing technology sales, currently working in kind of the professional services space in support of many of those marketing technologies, predominantly the Oracle Marketing Cloud. And in addition to doing that work and and managing a multi-million dollar territory, I a few years ago started the Sales Success Stories podcast where I only interview quota-carrying individual contributors who are either the outright number one top performers in their companies, or I joke, I'm willing to settle for the top 1%. So when I find folks that are number three on a team of 500, uh, that's close enough for me. Excellent. Okay. So help me understand this. Obviously, you hear stories of uh, good and bad all the time. And so what I'm curious about is what are the qualities that really determine whether salespeople are successful, just pootle along, or they just uh, die a horrible, slow, painful death? That's a great question. And certainly probably one of the most common ones I am asked when it comes to, you know, having done a hundred or over a hundred of these interviews at, at this point, you know, what are those, those common traits? I'll tell you, it's, it's people have found kind of what works for them. So there's less commonalities than you might think beyond things that are probably really obvious. And I, I talk a lot about there, there is no silver bullet. Everybody is kind of looking for this magic thing that is going to change everything for them. And no, you, you, you have to work hard. You have to have the right mindset. I, I think what might surprise a lot of people is this the stereotypical like great salesperson thing we have in our head is probably wrong i have found oh, that yeah the the very best sales professionals tend to be the very best humans you know and and there's so much focus and emphasis on let's just take great care of the customer let's serve them it's almost a form of of servant leadership and when you do that when you do a great job of that all of the quota attainment and being number one and all of that other stuff kind of follows if you just do the right thing, do it consistently uh, over time. That's that's really the game. It's it's not it's not beating people up and and trying to manipulate them and all these silly, you know, games and, and tactics we play. Sales is is about service. It's about helping people. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I, I've just come off. Um... Uh, working with a client, uh, developing their recruitment model. And the thing that's come out of that from uh, speaking to the sales managers is that the qualities that actually make up the successful ones almost never have anything to do with uh, skill. The CV doesn't have Mm -hmm. to have the right experience. And their historical results kind of speak for themselves, but they're not driven by those they're absolutely driven by service. They are great listeners. You said that they're great, you know, the best humans. They absolutely are. I interviewed Caroline Pino from Splunk, who is without question the best salesperson I've ever spoken to in my life. I've spoken to tens of thousands. And 
in January, she got diagnosed with cancer, brand new to her role, decided that she wasn't going to be beaten by it. She's been going through chemo all year, probably only about two to two and a half hours of energy to work a day and coming in in October at 300% of quota and hadn't any intention of stopping throughout November and December. And what she oozed in just in spades was her humanity, the ability to get discretionary effort out of the people who didn't necessarily get rewarded or recognized, the absolute emphasis on service and turning up only to be there to help. And none of this artifice and none of this manipulative stuff and not worried about tactics or technique. This is one of the things that I have a real bee in my bonnet about, the emphasis on teaching people closing techniques and objection handling techniques instead of actually being there to serve the customer. Yeah, you know, there's there's a couple of things you bring up. I mean, one is one is the objection handling. And the way I've been thinking about that a lot lately is the best way to deal with an objection, it's not objection handling skills that you need. It's objection understanding skills. It's really digging in and trying to understand, okay, wait, what's really going on with that? What's what's behind that, right? Because when you hear an objection, that's typically just the surface level. And if you go a little bit deeper and if you will lead with some curiosity and really seek to understand, you're gonna, again, it's not manipulation. It's, I'm, I'm just trying to help. I'm just trying to understand. And when you take that approach, it, it changes a lot of things. I also wanted to come back to, you, you talked about kind of the, the recruitment process and the things that we're looking for. I've also been having a lot of conversations here lately about one of the kind of primary things I think a lot of sales leaders look for is I'm looking for a former athlete, right? Somebody, somebody with that type of a background. And I think, not that there's anything wrong with that, but there are some things behind that that are the real drivers. And it's not, I think everybody has believed, oh, it's because they're, it's, they're competitive. That's mm-hmm. the thing that, that makes the difference. You know what it is, I think, is because we've been seeing this also across top debaters and, and top uh, thespians. Like if somebody was, was great, Sarah Brazier is a great example of this, right? She was an actress before she came into, into sales. The trait is the discipline. It's the discipline to consistently do things that are often challenging and just do them over and over and over again, right? And so if they've got that great athletic background, what did they do to train and be great in that sport? It wasn't just that, oh, I was competitive and I wanted to win. Well, I think it goes beyond that as well. There was a reason why they wanted to win. And that drive, that motivation, when you're looking at objections, look for motive, cause, and intent behind the objection. What was it that triggered the objection? What's the motive behind objecting at that time? What's the intent behind it? Is it to try and gather more information or is it a trap? Are they trying to get to grips with what you, what you said because you were unclear? And always look in the mirror. And this is another thing that I see in great salespeople. They own the outcome. They take personal responsibility and ownership, but then they surrender the outcome as well. This is uh, something else. They're not wedded to the outcome and they know when to say no. They practice radical honesty. They do difficult work. They don't mind putting themselves in harm's way and saying, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. Our product isn't great in that area. 
Shall we just end the conversation now? Because they're not afraid of it, because they know that a qualified no is like saving a goal in football, in soccer. And the other really important quality, uh, which we've touched on, is service. And I don't think people really understand what service means. I'd be curious about what your take on it. What, what is service? And I'm going to go bigger than service, right? I'm going to go back to this idea of servant leadership, right? So service, service to me is helping your customer get the things that they want. And so I think we get all hung up on adding value and, and these other, you know, service, I, I think fits into that too, right? This is sort of a nebulous term. And we can't define what that is. Marcus, I can't tell you, like, I'm going to do this and that's going to be valuable for you. I don't know that until I understand where you're trying to go and what the real objectives and goals are. Then if we can do that, then we can lead. So I I think the other element of this and and a, a big epiphany that I had this year is sales is leadership. People want to be led. I think too often we sort of put the you know, well, just tell me what you want and I'll, I'll give you everything you need. Well, a lot of times our customers don't know what they want. They don't know what they need. They might know where they're trying to get to. They might understand what that end goal is. And then it's our job to lead them there and to help them get there. And that's what, that's what to me is, is service and servant leadership. I agree. And I, I would go a little bit further that I believe people come to salespeople for leadership and a safe pair of hands. What they're looking for is someone that they can depend on uh, to have their best interests at heart and help them achieve the outcomes that they want. And this is where I think so many sales methodologies get it wrong, so many trainers and so many managers get it wrong, because they think it's about moving away from pain. And I've been guilty of this (laughs) myself. But yes, people want to move away from pain, but what they're buying is that better future. Bob Mester talks about this better than me. And he says that people rent an outcome. They don't buy it. They rent it for as long as it keeps delivering the outcome that they need in the Mm. moment. No one in the history of humanity has ever bought the drill, nor have they bought Mm -hmm. the quarter-inch hole, nor have they bought the rule plug that fits into the hole, nor the picture hook, nor the picture. It's the memories. Now, the problem is that salespeople inevitably because of how they are managed, how they are trained, how they're incentivized, have a tendency to focus on being transactional. And I'm on a mission. One of my four big hairy-ass goals um, is to elevate the status of sales because I fundamentally believe we are a a force for good. Now, I want to raise the game for the entire sales profession. Part of the reason why this podcast exists is to do that. Um, now, I don't imagine for a second in my lifetime or you know, three lifetimes hence um, that we're ever going to get there. Um, but the objective is not to uh, hit the destination, it's the journey. And um, the, the aim of elevating the whole profession is critical. And it wakes me up at the middle of the night excited to get started. And I have to lie in bed from 3 till 5.30 waiting to get started so I don't get um, a tongue lashing from my wife. It's having those big, hairy goals um, that are impossible. And I think that's what I see in the best salespeople, because they understand that their career is a function. It's, It's a means to get what they want from life. 
and they're not into the accumulation of just cash. If they want to uh, accumulate a certain amount of money, it's for a reason. It's never just because they want an 18-foot-high pile of dollar notes. Yeah, yeah. There, there's, my gosh, there's, there's a lot to that, right? So I, I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, it's beyond a certain point. I don't think cash is that significant of a driver. Once you've got sort of your needs met, it becomes about bigger things. And, you know, being a great sales professional has its own rewards yeah. because of the result and exactly what you talked about, right? It's, it's not, I don't ever see, I think the close, like that concept, that term, that whole idea in and of itself is basically wrong because a close sounds like the end. That's the ending. Absolutely That's, not. The close is when we close a deal, when somebody signs the paperwork, that's the beginning of the actual relationship. And now we're, we're really driving towards the outcomes, right? So there, I think there's a lot of just incredible rewards that come from if you sell with integrity and you sell ethically and you sell to serve your customer, the real reward is watching them experience those outcomes that's what they actually bought in the first place. And that might actually mean, even if you have to hand over the relationship, once you quote unquote close it, right? And you bring in a delivery team or a customer success team or whatever else is gonna happen afterwards, it's still incumbent upon you. And you mentioned this earlier to just take ownership and, and to own it and have responsibility for that outcome. So let's make sure that we actually get to that place. And if you do, well, one, there's likely to be more opportunities in that, in that same relationship. Another reason why it's not the close, right? Off, oftentimes, especially when you think about really, really big deals, it's really rare that, that somebody does an eight-figure deal as the first transaction. Mm. It's oftentimes the second or third or fourth. Once you've developed a track record and they've had a chance to see you prove, not as, not as an individual, as an organization, as a solution, that you can deliver on the things that you say, and then we get to that really big thing. So if you own that outcome, there's bigger opportunities, there's referrals, everybody's moving around so much these days. I can't tell you how many folks I've done business with in two or three different companies because we've built a good relationship. They've seen that we're able to, to deliver those outcomes. And now it's just a no-brainer. Like, I don't need to talk to anybody else. I know, I know Scott's going to take care of me. So let me just call Scott and we'll get this solved. And even if Scott's organization doesn't have the answer, I know that Scott will point me in the right direction because he's here to serve. Absolutely. And that, that's heartwarming to hear. What I'm also noticing is that the wrong behaviors are so often driven uh, with good intent. And this is one of the things I really want to highlight. The way CRM is set up, <laughs> the way compensation schemes are set up, the way we recruit, the way we manage, often drive unintended negative consequence. So let's take a little deviation down the CRM route, because I know this is a subject close to both of our hearts. Why is, in your opinion, why is CRM built backwards? So CRM, this is totally a soapbox topic for me. CRM was really built with the sales leader in mind. 
so what the sales leadership wants is, hey, we've got to have a, a, a good, clear understanding of the forecast and what people are doing and, and all of these types of things. And in order to get there, you're relying on the sales team to spend, frankly, a lot of time to put in data to inform those outcomes. But that becomes a chore. There's no value to the salesperson to put in that data. You're taking them away from having the important conversations and doing the important sales work. I believe, and I've actually seen this in, in, in a, a small instance, I believe if, if we built CRM the other way, if we built CRM to serve the sales professional and to make them better, then all the data would be there. And as an outcome, leadership would have all the visibility and, and all of the data that they need to make the numbers and, and understand what's actually going on. I actually worked for a very short time with a, a very small web development firm here in Austin, and they had built their own CRM and it did this and it was insane. So for example, if I take a very common action, which is I pick up the phone, Marcus, I'm going to try and call, call you and set a meeting. Well, eight, nine times out of 10, I'm probably going to get your voicemail. I'm not going to actually get you live picking up the phone. In most CRMs today, the number of clicks and actions I have to take to log the fact that I made that call, I left a voicemail, now I've got to schedule another follow-up action, so I'm sure to call Marcus two days from now, whatever else. I don't know, it's probably 15 clicks. It's, wow. it's probably two or three minutes every single time I make a call. In this particular CRM that I used, everything was, was just sort of set up for me. I would go in, I would click on Marcus because that's on my list of calls that I need to make today. It would have all of my previous, super simple, right? It would have all of my previous notes chronologically. So I would know here's what happened the last time we talked and here's, here's the purpose of this call, but I get your voicemail. I would click one single button and it would say, okay, left voicemail and two business days later, Marcus would be back in my list and I'd click on Marcus and I would just repeat that exercise. And I am pretty good and on top of and diligent about my follow-up. But those few months that I worked with that company, I got more compliments and feedback on just how great my follow-up was because the tool served me. And, and then I, I had a chance to see the leadership view of it and it was amazing, right? You could see how many calls per hour are, are people making? What are the outcomes? And, and everything was built based on their sales process. So they had the data to see, oh, Scott's doing a great job of getting demos and presenting demos, but he's having trouble moving deals forward after that. So they knew exactly where to coach and where to hone in with each individual. It was so simple. It was so brilliant. But the way the traditional CRMs are built is, is completely backwards and basically... I don't want to say useless, but you get just garbage data in because in most cases, it's okay, we're not going to pay you if it's not logged in, in CRM. Okay, well, I'm only going to put that opportunity in when it's about to close and, and it affects my comp. You're not going to have visibility to all the rest of, of my opportunities because why? How does that help me as, as a sales professional? I think a lot of CRM has essentially become a tool for audit and CRM should be a tool that helps salespeople sell more, more often to more people, more effectively. And uh, I'm going through this exercise at the moment, evaluating CRMs, and we've plumped on Membrane because of its level of flexibility. 
and the ability to mirror the buyer's buying process as well as having our own sales process. But I love, uh, and I will be uh, investigating whether we can do one-click automated follow-up because I I think that's a fantastic capability. So talk to me about compensation plans. (laughs) Why does so much uh, of the comp plan drive transactional really bad or awful behavior? Yeah, you know this. This is a really tough one. I'm I'm listening to a book, and and without getting into politics, I, I won't say who, but I'm I'm listening to a book by a, a prominent former leader, and there, you know, this is about government and policy and and things like that. And in in when you're making laws, there are all kinds of unintended consequences, and and we cause all sorts of things to go wrong and backwards and like, oh, that's not what we meant to have happen at, at the all. The road to hell. And so I, I really, I, I think that it's, it's not ill intent. No organization goes about like, hey, we're going we're gonna to put in, this, in place this comp plan to screw our sales team or have them do the wrong things. And it's just not as, as thought out. One, one of the best leaders I ever worked for Actually, he just got a, acquired by by Adobe. He was most recently the CEO of uh, Workfront, but he was our chief revenue officer when I was at Eloqua. Uh, his name is Alex Schutman. And, and one of the things that Alex talked about was commander's intent. It's this idea that when you're on the, the battlefield, it's really important for everyone on that team or in that organization or in that structure to understand what are we actually trying to accomplish because we put plans in place we we put compensation in place but when when we actually are in the real world right plans plans are what i don't, i'm i'm not remembering the the term right like a plan is is, is works in, until the first shot is fired or, or something yeah, like the, that right the plan that i'm not only thinking of survives for, um the plan only survives first contact with the enemy or that's um, it that's exactly it. And and if you don't understand what is the intent, what are we actually trying to accomplish here, then you get hung up and, and you you get focused on completing this thing that now that we've encountered our adversary or, we've, or adversary is the wrong word in, in this context, right? Now that we've encountered our customer, fulfilling that particular task is now maybe irrelevant. But if you understand the broader intent, and what we're trying to accomplish. And I, I think one of the biggest places that comp plans are, are just disconnected is in SaaS particularly, where the value of a customer is all about their lifetime value. It's not about the value of their contract in the first year. But that's what we're compensated on in most cases, right? We're, we're going to compensate you based on the annual contract value with no bearing or, or, or just no recognition of the fact that in that first year, we probably don't even make money. We make money when they are a satisfied customer and they renew year after year after year after year. And it's, it's years, you know, five through 10 and beyond where we make massive margins and we have an incredible relationship. But if you're only compensating sales folks on that, on that first year, do I care if they don't renew in their second year, right? Is so so I'm actually incentivized to sell bad business because I'm going to get paid. And that is incredibly hurtful to the organization 
to have churn like that. Because not only do you lose that customer, but now you've got sort of ill will in the marketplace, right? Now you've got somebody out there who's like, yeah, I wouldn't do business with those guys. They, they can't deliver on, on what they said, or it sounded really good, but, but that's, that's garbage. Whereas if you flip that around, right? If, if, we, if we incentivized people based on, I don't know how you would do it, but based on this lifetime value and understanding that intent, if I've got an extraordinarily happy customer, it's exactly what we talked about before. They're bringing in more customers. There are people who are raising their hand like, I, I would love to do reference calls for you. They're willing to do the, those work, bring in, bring in more, more referrals. They're going to do business with us again when they move to the next organization. They're going to do more business with us over time because we've built that relationship. It's very rare that I see a comp plan that rewards that type of, of behavior. And I think that's where a lot of the rub is. It's difficult work. And I can speak from personal experience here because I'm trying to develop that now. And it's an outcome-based compensation plan that rewards people for their contribution to the success of not only the win, but the utilization levels, the renewal levels, the expansion levels, and the referral levels. And everybody who contributed needs to be compensated. And this is where I think a lot of traditional sales leadership and compensation thinking is wrong. Because it's easy and it's simple to say, we want to hit this number, so you've got to sell this amount. But I'm less interested in the initial win. When I'm teaching my uh, salespeople to prospect, I'm teaching them to prospect for a customer who will be 5, 10, 15 years down the road, still a customer. I want them to be engaged, rewarded, and also fully uh, lots of skin in the game to make sure that they stay close to that customer. And even if they hand over to a customer success team, I want them to continue to be in that account because I don't think account managers are properly titled. I think they need to be focused on account growth and account development. So I want them to have regular contact and I want them to go deep and wide. And again, one of the things I see is lack of coverage. Getting a deal over the line means that what you're picking up are the crumbs. You know, in enterprise, I, I read uh, a couple of weeks ago that in an enterprise sale now, which is over a thousand people in the company, um, you now have up to 11 decision makers. Now, on average, uh, you have fewer, uh, an average of fewer than two people uh, engaged on the buy side within most deals. So if you do win, honestly, it's about luck rather than judgment. And it's less down to, it's not down to your skill or competency. It's down to the fact they were going to buy anyway. And they happen to disqualify the other ones rather than you. So I love the idea that what you're aiming to do is get customers to say, I'd love to do reference calls for you. So I think I'm going to build that in as a component that if you can get customers to do that, you get a bonus. Sure. Sure. You know, I, I think, and again, I don't design comp plans like this. This, this is my, not my, my gig, but I, I think what's needed, what makes sales professionals more valuable is this more holistic, bigger picture thinking, right? If you think about what's good for the business, here's, here's another example, right? Like a deal is a deal with no regard to margin. So would you rather have, you know, a, a $250,000 deal that costs us $249,000 to deliver or, or a $200,000 deal that cost $100,000 to deliver, right? But if, again, traditional comp plan, I'm going to get paid more on that 250 k deal 
than I am, I am on the 200K deal when the difference to the company is $100,000 difference. It's 100 times more, more profitable. Are we thinking about those things? Are we thinking about the profitability? Are we thinking about, you said the word utilization, right? Are we, think, are we thinking about the way that we're going to need to utilize resources inside the organization to deliver this? Are, are we going to have to customize our solution to win this deal in a way that doesn't help us? Or can we customize this in a way that we can actually productize and now becomes more valuable to other organizations? And I've seen, and I've tried to be a, a great sales professional who frequently will work with the product team, will work with the marketing team and be mindful of these other things and think about directionally, is this the right thing? Is it right for us to do this customization? Or am I taking away resources from my development team that's going to keep us from delivering on some of our most important roadmap items that are going to help me sell more next year and the year after that? I, I, I couldn't agree more. Definitely compensate on gross profit rather than on revenue. And I'll give you a, a depressingly bad example. There was a company large systems integrator in the UK who did a 10-year deal where they lost 3 million a year and they paid the salesperson on revenue. They signed the customer's terms and conditions without checking them and it cost them 30 million pounds plus what the opportunity plus cost. Plus the of, commissions. <laughs> uh, well, plus the commission, plus the opportunity cost of what they could have spent that money on plus the cost of running that account for 10 years and all the resources that were sucked in. Because if they lost 3 million a year on it, you can bet your bottom dollar there were at least 100 heads that were tied up uh, servicing that account. Now, that's a massive expense. And this then brings me to the next big question, which is around recruitment. One of the things that I've learned the hard way over the years is that wrong hires in sales are excruciatingly expensive. In fact, I developed a calculator um, specifically around enterprise sales wrong hires. And you can uh, it will cost you, on average, somewhere between 35 and 125 times their salary if you make a bad hire in enterprise sales. Now, interestingly enough, a lot of managers don't care about that cost because it's not coming directly out of their P&L. What they should care about is the fact that if you hire a bad salesperson or someone who is not a good fit, you just bought a series of management problems, which will take you away from your day job. Now, again, when you've interviewed great leaders, how much emphasis do they put on the hiring process? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invoke Alex Schutman again, because I, I saw the model. It's the best model I've ever seen to uh, essentially manage that. And also it, it's essentially the cure for the toxic sales, sales organization. Because how many times have we seen a top sales performer who's putting up all kinds of numbers, but is just doing it wrong? right? He's, he's screwing over the rest of the, he's screwing over everybody, right? Screwing over the rest of the team, screwing over customers, but, but they're the number one, right? Like, oh, they're generating the most revenue. In my first interview with Alex here in Austin, he drew in, and it, uh, this is actually detailed in a little bit more detail in the, in the sales success stories book where I've, I've got the, the graphics, but very simply two by two grid, one axis is getting it done. The other axis is doing it right. And we talked a lot of the, the culture really was getting it done and doing it right. So if you've got somebody and you go to that top 
right box. They're getting it done. They're doing it right. He, he drew a star there. He said that that is exactly what we want, that that individual should be recognized. They should be rewarded. If you move to the bottom left quadrant, right? They're not getting it done. They're not doing it right. Well, that's pretty obvious. This is sales. So let's, let's be honest. He put an F in that box and said that person is probably fired. Then he said, we've got somebody that's doing it right, but they're not getting it done. So they're doing all of the right things, but their results aren't reflecting what we need of them. He wrote a C in that box and said, we're going to coach that person. We're going to work with them. We believe that good things happen to good people. And we're going to try and develop them and move them into that star quadrant uh, so that we can keep them around and we don't have to be in a situation where we're, where we're going to fire them. But the magic in the whole model in that top left box that is they're getting it done, they're generating tons of revenue, but they're not doing it right. They're not being mindful of the impact to the broader organization, to those customers, all of those types of things. He wrote a giant FF for fired faster. Yeah. Because that is what breeds toxicity in sales environments. And I would be willing to bet if you, the, the people listening to this have worked in sales for any amount of time, you have worked in that organization where leadership looks the other way around all the bad behavior that this person is exhibiting because they're generating the revenue. It's, it's screwing up the mentality, the mindset, everything else of the entire rest of not just the sales team, but the organization. If you can get those people out and demonstrate that that's what you're willing to do, the whole rest of your sales organization will rise to the occasion. In the success cadence, Tom Shodorf and Bart Finale were running sales and revenue operations for Splunk. And one of their first acts was to get rid of the two top salespeople for precisely that reason, um, because they were toxic. Um, and uh, it sent a phenomenally powerful message to the rest of the organization, not just in sales, but throughout operations, marketing, product development. Um, and the impact was exemplary um, because um, then people knew that this is the culture of the business. We, you know, you've got to be uh, a team player within Splunk. You can't be a lone wolf. And you've got to serve the customer. And they, they actually had clients who were more than delighted to be reference calls uh, for them. And that's how they grew their business. And they went from 42 million to 1.2 billion in five years. And, yeah. I, and it's, I, all, it's just all about rewarding and recognizing the right behaviors. Who is, is doing it right? Absolutely. Scott, tell me this. I mean, you, you've been a, a quota-carrying salesperson for all of your career. As you look back, what were your best mistakes? <laughs> My best mistakes? Uh, you know, geez, you're putting me on the side. I mean, any, any mistake that I can learn from is, is a good one. You know, I, I think... Early on, it took me a long time to kind of learn this, this lesson. I like to think a lot. I'm a very strategic uh, kind of guy. And I remember early on in my career, I would overthink things. It was one where like I needed to have like the perfect plan. I need to have this like perfect cold call structure. I needed to have everything figured out before I would start to go and execute. And again, we go back to this idea of like every plan works and until you, you actually deploy it. And I have learned over time that I learned so much more and so much faster by just doing stuff, 
right? Even though it's not perfect, even though I don't have all of the answers, I'm going to get the answers faster by actually having conversations, by actually putting different prospecting techniques or, or different process elements into place and seeing how it works and seeing how it's received and asking for feedback on that than I am sitting by myself trying to think about and figure out the perfect way. Well, you've touched on something else that's near and dear to my heart. I'm not a huge fan of cold calling for the simple reason that it's massively inefficient. Um, however, it is a fantastic feedback loop. Mm -hmm. And um, within 30 conversations, you are going to find out what works and what doesn't work. But so many people sit there and they try and craft the perfect message. And they do the same with their emails. And then they spend most of their time in avoidance behaviors. And uh, again, I, I think one of the challenges is that very few salespeople ask for cold, unvarnished feedback from their prospects, especially when they've lost. I recently interviewed Karen Mangia and Matthew Sweezy from Salesforce, and they were releasing their uh, research on what drives customer success. Now, the formula that they came up with, and it, it, it can't be this obvious, but actually it is. <laughs> customer success is driven by delivering good, strong customer outcomes over and above the customer experience, plus the employee experience. And this then speaks to having the right culture and making sure uh, that people are recognized for the right behaviors and so forth. Because if you've got highly engaged employees, uh, they will look after the customer. Now, the really interesting, another really interesting element of their research is that the speed of your product development cycle increases by 600% if you speak to customers who are unhappy. Mm. Now, all too often, salespeople avoid difficult conversations. Marketing avoids conversations entirely with the customer. The product people aren't ever in front of the customer. And this is another really telling statistic. Did you know that 40% of customer help desk calls in technology are caused because engineers built the product? It comes back to, again, like I, I think this is a way that we can serve the organization by bringing product and, and those engineers into the customer conversation so that they can hear what they're saying, what that challenge is. It's kind of the same thing that I just talked about, right? Rather than trying to guess at what we think, the, how the customer is going to use the product or what they're trying to solve for. What if you just asked them and figured out what's actually happening? And, and I'll say, maybe this is the same thing that, that Matt Sweezy is, is suggesting, just said a, a different way. Having worked at Bizarre Voice, where we sold customer reviews. So if you've seen reviews on a, on a website that wasn't Amazon, you've probably seen Bizarre Voice. And what I learned through that is experience as a function of expectation. So Marcus, imagine that you and I had the same experience. And just to make this really easy, we'll say that it was a four-star experience. But your expectation going in was a five-star experience. So your four-star experience is dissatisfying. You did not have a good experience. Yeah. My expectation going in was a three-star experience. So I had the same four-star experience that you had, but I'm happy. My expectations were exceeded. So I, I, a part of this 
is managing expectations and being really mindful of how we set that. And again, it comes with being super honest and truthful about, look, here's the reality. Here's where my product has some warts. And we're going to need to do some stuff to either work around this or smooth over this. But when we come to this point, this is going to be a little bit of a challenge. And I just want you to know that. Just saying stuff like that is going to build a ton of trust and make them much, much happier about their experience on the back end because I set that expectation properly. And Todd Capone wrote uh, the book. uh, Todd worked for one of our competitors. Todd's stuff is fantastic. Well, uh, again, I, I can't. Fault it, you know. If you if you are not rigorously authentic, and always tell the truth, then I don't believe you have a place in sales. One of my favorite interview questions is Scott: When's it okay to lie to a prospect? And mm. unless somebody Oof. comes back immediately with never, even if there's a slight hesitation, that raises a red flag for me. Now I may have given. I wish more organizations were asking that question. That that is greatness. What really befuddles me is why you would ever think that lying to a customer is good. There is a fundamental rule in human relations, which is I can forgive your lie, but I can never forget it. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. a salesperson who lies to a customer is a massive liability, not just because of the legal ramifications, but morally, it sends the message that we tolerate that kind of shit. And we don't. As far as I'm concerned, and and, um, in uh, principles, Ray Dalio talks about this. They have a failure log. You never get punished Mm. for failing. You absolutely do get punished for hiding the failure. And this is the other thing. I think we need to be vulnerable enough to say, you know, I messed up. It's my fault. But I think that, that so many people have been conditioned to think that failure in role is a personality defect. And they become brittle. So they're unrespond or they're negatively responsive to criticism. I welcome it. I, I can't wait to get uh, feedback, whether it's positive or negative, so I can improve. And again, I think this is one of the qualities that we should look for in salespeople, that they are always looking to improve. My problem with the profession, and I use that term as loosely as it possibly can be, is that most salespeople with 10 years experience have one year's experience 10 times over because they haven't learned a damn thing since. Mm-hmm. It's terrifying. So much of what you're saying leads to really the, the the vision that I've started to develop for what I want the sales success community to be, right? So I've, I've been building this thing. We do this big annual event, the Sales Success Summit here in Austin. And I've been thinking a lot about what, what do we want? And, and to your point, like how do we truly professionalize sales, right? And and make it something that, that people aspire to are proud of, right? I, I hate it when people are afraid to to say that they're that they're in sales. And I believe that there are two types of companies and two types of sales professionals. So on on one side, you've got the companies that see their sales force as an asset as humans, as as something, as people who are worthy of investment. Who, who they want to allow to grow and reward them for doing the right things and not screw around with their comp plan and punish them because they sold too big of a deal or you know all the other goofy things that, that happen. And then you know, you've got the rest of the companies and I think we've all seen it, right? Where it's like, gosh, you know, sales is a, is a necessary expense. It's this necessary evil. We, we tolerate it. Uh, we hate that we have to pay these people this much money. 
And there's there's just no recognition of the human. They're the first ones to just, you know, hack people loose, even though maybe they just need a little bit of coaching, whatever it is. Similarly, I think there's two types of sales professionals. I, I think there are those who really view this as a craft, as a profession. They're looking to grow themselves and become better in this role. And then there's a whole lot of others who I know aren't listening to this podcast, certainly at this point. We we lost them long ago, and who were who were just like, yep, yeah, this is my job. I sure I I make good money. They're not into it. They're not committed to it. And and the dumb part of my model is I'm interested in what I think are probably the minority of each of those equations, right? Bringing the good companies and the great professionals together because they deserve each other, right? Great sales professionals deserve being in a place where they're going to be nurtured and they're going to have the opportunity to grow and develop and do the right things and experiment and and all of these different things. And the two on the wrong side of the equation, well, they deserve each other too. So they they can have at it. The bad companies can have the bad salespeople and and vice versa. And you know, what whatever happens, happens over there. But hopefully more and more people will see over time, wow, when when you do this right, right? When you when you take care of your people and your people are are vested in taking care of the organization in a lot of the ways that we've talked about, right? I wanna, I wanna maintain margins. I wanna make sure that I'm bringing the insights from the the marketplace to the product organization, to the marketing organization, to the support organization, we're all going to win in in that type of a model. And and unfortunately, I I, I I'm I think it's the minority. Well, I I think another quality that I look for in great salespeople is they do not believe that it is the company's sole responsibility for them to develop. They take personal ownership for their learning and they read, they put themselves on courses, they're constantly developing, they seek out mentors and coaches. And what I struggle to understand is why anybody would choose to come into a profession this difficult and choose to make their lives harder by being lazy when it comes to learning. Maybe it's me, I don't know, I'm a bit of a sales nerd and a freak, but the, the, the reality is that my life has only got better and easier because I've obsessed about getting better and learning. And I struggle to understand why people do not spend more time in the interview process finding out how much people have invested in themselves. It seems crazy that someone, you know, if, as long as you can read, which most of us can, why are you not reading? And if you can't read, use audiobooks. There's videos. You can speak to other people. You can ask for help. But I just see so little of that happening. I'm fortunate that I kind of attract people like that. But I know in the wider sales profession, it just doesn't happen. And managers tolerate it. They think that's okay. Marcus, you promised me we were going to fight with each other. This isn't working out quite right. But you know it's it's interesting too. So so two. Your mother was a hamster, and your father smelt of elderberries. (laughs) (laughs) I fought in your general direction. (laughs) (laughs) So you know, it's it's so I I absolutely agree. The second daily sales tip I ever released, and now we're up to gosh, I don't know, seven hundred, was you have to own your own development. So hopefully your company, hopefully your organization that you work for is a partner in that development, but ultimately it's up to you. It's not their job to develop you in the right way. You've got to figure out your own path, your own journey, how to be 
the best version of you. And interestingly, earlier this year, we, we created an offering that we call Peer Accountability and Growth Groups, where we bring small groups of sales professionals together to learn from each other, hold each other accountable, and, and to grow in this way. And we won't allow them to expense more than half of, of that investment because they have to be committed to investing in themselves. It's the only way that they're going to fully show up and be there. And so when you're investing in your own learning and you're not waiting for your employer to pay for it, it's just a different game. You're going to play the game differently. You're going to learn faster. You're going to get better faster. You're going to see those results that you want faster because you're investing in you. My associate, Benjamin Denner, he came up with that idea about five years ago, and he wouldn't take clients on unless the salespeople paid 50% of the training cost. And we weren't cheap by any stretch of the imagination. So we didn't do huge volumes, but they were so committed. Yeah. And the net result of that was the companies grew. They scaled massively. And you know, we, we, were taught, we, we routinely would see two, three, four, five hundred, eight hundred, twelve hundred, fourteen hundred percent growth in individual salespeople. And that that's my benchmark. Anyone who's delivering 10, 20, 30 percent increase in uh, an individual salesperson's performance, particularly early on in their career, I think yeah. you're being robbed. It's a game changer, especially early in the career, because just think about what that trajectory looks like over time, right? We're talking 20 or 30% improvement in a single year. What does that mean over a 10, 15, 20-year career? Let me put this into context, okay? We all know what compound interest is. Yep. And Albert Einstein said it was the eighth wonder of the world. Those who understand it, earn it. Those who don't, pay it. Now, if you take $100, and you add half a percent interest compound, so you keep reinvesting your 50 cents and whatever it uh, is every single day, at the end of the year, you are left with $373, just half a percent improvement a day. If you add 1%, it's $1,400 at the end of year one. Yep. Now, at the end of year two, just do the maths. <laughs> You're starting to see exponential growth. In three years, you're 2,700% up. Now, that is not difficult to do. I challenge any manager and any salesperson out there to tell me that you cannot improve by half a percent a day. Yeah, Half a percent yep. is a negligible amount. Yeah. And and we didn't we didn't get to this. It's probably it's it's, its own podcast episode all by itself. But I, I think the challenge that I've seen with with a lot of leadership programs is just with the way that we're trying to drive everything based on the numbers and the spreadsheets and everything else, we're we're trying to fit sales professionals into a box. Like I need you to perform like this and I need you to take these uh, uh, actions and I need you to be an automaton in this way. The real opportunity is to help sales professionals develop as individuals. Because again, having interviewed over a hundred of these people, <laughs> I know that they have all found something in themselves that's a little bit different, that's a little bit special, and they have magnified the crud out of that. And you and I can't do what they're doing. Only they can do what they're doing. And the trick is to find what that thing is for yourself. And so you've got to find that yourself. And if you're leading salespeople, you've got to help them find that in themselves and exploit that and leverage that. Very good. 
Scott, we're coming to the top of the hour. So let me ask you this. You've got a golden ticket. And you can go back to uh, advise the idiot Scott, age 23. What advice would you give him, whether he would uh, pay any attention to the advice or not? Yeah, well, there, there's two answers to that, right? One one is uh, I, I wouldn't change a thing because if, if I messed with 23-year-old Scott, then I wouldn't be uh, where I am today doing doing what I am today. But I think it's until I started Sales Success Stories, I had heard the Jim Rohn quote that says, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with <laughs> over and over and over again throughout my career, but I had never really intentionally acted on it. So what I would tell 23-year-old Scott is, see this quote, understand this idea and truly act on it and think really big. I think that's great advice. My advice would be to have big, hairy, arsed, audacious goals and don't color in between the lines for the sake of goals. I've always struggled with goals. And I've always found the, 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 one of the crappiest bits of advice is set smart goals. The behavior should be smart. The goals should be done. That's, that's exactly it. I say your, your goals should be behavioral goals, not outcome goals, because you can't always control the outcomes. You can control the, the behaviors. You can control the inputs. So I, I say your goal should be, what are you going to commit to consistently do? It's all about the consistency, and it's all about those behaviors and, and the actions. The results will come. And I, I would go one step further, that I think the goal should be outcome-based uh, in that the outcome should be impossible to attain. It needs to be so big, so hairy, so audacious that it sends a shiver up your spine, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, you obsess about it, and you're constantly thinking, how am I going to do better? How am I going to get closer? And then it needs to be uplifting. It needs to be dream-based. It needs to be uplifting. There needs to be method behind it, and it needs to be behavior-driven. And those behaviors, those can be smart. And those inputs need to be consistent. And I struggle to understand why there is such a huge uh, market for bad advice around goal setting, bad advice around sales and sales management and self-help. It all seems to be so ass about face. And I, I just struggle to understand how gullible a species we are that yep. we can keep beating our head against the wall and then blame the brick because there's uh, you know skin and blood all over it. Yeah. yeah well, you got to look at the source, right? Are, are these people doing it or are they talking about doing it? Right. So, so I, I said something accidentally at, at my summit one year. I think I, it was something along the lines of I'm more interested in learning from what the doers do than from what the sayers say. Fair point. So if you're looking for a guru, find one that's actually doing what they're teaching not just showing photos of Ferraris. Yes. Oh, God. Please not that. <laughs> so what books have inspired you? Well, podcasts or videos, but you know, what, what content do you write, uh, would you direct people to? You know, one of my favorite books over the, the last number of years, I've, I've been referencing this book a, a lot, and I think it ties back to a lot of what we've been talking about. So Jocko Willink wrote a yeah. book called Extreme Ownership. Yeah. And it's, it, it really comes back to this idea of you are ultimately responsible 
for your results and and what you get in in life. And it's just a a, a great it's a it's a fun way that he kind of tells the story and and uh, uh, and and pulls that out. And and to me, that was just really really impactful. That at the end of the day it all boils down to you. You can't blame it on, on anybody else. You've got to take responsibility of, of what you can take responsibility for, control what you can control and, and do the best you can with that. And don't, don't worry about the, the rest. If you do it right, it'll come. Excellent. So what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? The fact that we're seven minutes after and I got to go. Okay. Fair <laughs> <enough>. <laughs> but on that note, let's wrap up. How can people get hold of you? So best place, if you go to top1.fm, T-O-P, the number one.fm, you'll find all the podcasts and the books and the Sales Success Summit and all that good stuff. And you are more than welcome to send me an email or connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm at scott at top1.fm. Excellent. Scott Ingram, thank you. My pleasure. Marcus, thanks this for having me. My pleasure. This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this and found it insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And go to Apple, scroll down below the fold, and then leave an honest review. And if you want to get a hold of me, my email is marcus at laughs-last.com, and you can contact me via direct message or connect on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.